Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where we go behind the lens and below the line with the movers and shakers, the film and TV makers, the writers, directors, producers, cinematographers, editors, production designers, uh, sound mixers, sound editors, uh, composers, choreographers, screenwriters, actors, you name it, we talk to them. And boy, we're talking to, to some people today that are wearing tons of hats at the same time. Uh, very excited. At the midpoint of the show, we're going to welcome live to the show Mindy Bledsoe, writer, director, actor, and editor, and producer of her new film, The In-Between. Uh, I can't wait to talk to her about it. It's a fun film. It's a female road trip with a purpose, and interwoven into the characters and the script, we have, she co-star co and co-producer is Jennifer Stone. Uh, many of you may know her from Wizards of Waverly Place and the whole Disney franchise. But they weave in chronic illnesses from which they both suffer into their characters and really open our eyes and shine a light showing that, hey, you may have a chronic illness, but you can still live life to the fullest. Um, so I can't wait to talk to Mindy about this film and uh, the fact that it's a road trip and they actually did drive 4,500 miles filming this film. So that'll be fun. Uh, and by the way, Tim, I know you're listening. If you want to let Mindy know because of our pre-record that's coming up here momentarily, she's calling in at the half at the 30 minute mark she may be on hold for about four minutes just letting you know now um now before we get to mindy talking about the in-between um you know that old saying be careful what you wish for well filmmakers david charbonnet and justin powell co-writers co-directors justin is also editor and david is production designer uh they are giving us the gin. Now, I first was introduced to David and Justin back in the fall with the world premiere of their film, The Boy Behind the Door. I am so in love with that film. Um, that was marked the world premiere, and it was our first exposure to David and Justin as filmmakers. They wowed me. They wowed people who saw it at Fantastic Fest. They have wowed people since it got a distribution deal, and it's out. And apparently the boy behind the door, Little Bird, uh, has told me that it's hitting, I think, DVD and Blu-ray uh, and maybe VOD in July. So we're going to stay, stay tuned for more information on that because it's an amazing film. And that film also introduced us to... Ezra Dewey and Lonnie Chavez. Well, Lonnie Chavez has just been wowing us in The Waterman. He has the lead in The Waterman, uh, the fantastical film written by M Emma Needle. You heard her interview here uh, last, I think it was last week. Last week's show we did The Waterman, Pam? I think. I think. Uh, but yes, you heard Emma's <laughs> exclusive with Emma here on the show within the past week or two. Um, but David and Justin introduced us to Lonnie and to Ezra Dewey. But what's interesting is that 
The Boy Behind the Door was actually their second film. Their first film was The Gin. And it just, through happenstance, The Boy Behind the Door hit the public before The Gin did. The Gin stars Ezra Dewey, who they brought back for The Boy Behind the Door. Um, what's fabulous is getting to see their growth as filmmakers, you know, to see the growth in film two, but to see that first and now backpedal to film one is wonderful. And what a wonderful film the gin is. It is the story of a mute boy played by Ezra Dewey. And he finds a book of shadows with spell with a spell in it to grant wishes. And his wish is he wants his voice. He wants to be able to speak. Um, But once he casts his wish, there's some caveats that he didn't quite read far enough in the Book of Shadows to find out about. Um, The key one being he must survive an hour after midnight. So from midnight to 1 a.m., he must survive with the demon or the gin in its various forms. This is a self-contained film. It is set in one apartment. Uh, Ezra is on screen for 99% of the film. Uh, Rob Brownstein plays his father. However, he's a radio talk show radio guy and he works at night. He has that midnight to seven uh, shift. So, Ezra's character of Dylan is left home alone at night. Perfect time to cast a spell, don't you know? Uh, And it takes off from there. This film is reliant on Ezra's performance as well as the sound design, the sound mix, and Julian Estrada's cinematography. Uh, The boys leave no stone unturned. David and Justin do an amazing job with the gin. So, as I did with the boy behind the door, I got to talk to them again uh, in this exclusive interview uh, for The Gin. Take a listen. Hi, boys. How are you? Hi, everyone. I'm excited to talk to you again. I know. I was waiting and waiting. I was so excited when I saw this come through on The Gin. I couldn't wait to see it. After what you did with the boy behind the door, uh, and you guys know how much I love that film. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, did you, I got a question for you out of the box? Did you shoot the gin after boy or before? We shot it before. <laughs> that is a really unique story, <laughs> to be honest. Well, because shoot, that explains a lot and makes a lot of sense to me because I see lesson, cinematic filmmaking lessons learned shooting the gin first that you upped your game so much with the boy behind the door and you really expanded... Um, your horizons in terms of creating a visual tonal bandwidth, um, building tension, you got that nailed from the very beginning with, with Jin on through Boy. You guys know how to build tension 
better than anyone. And again, and you've got Ezra. You can't go wrong. The three of you are a perfect triumvirate. Uh, <laughs> but tell me the story behind the gin and shooting that before Boy Behind the Door. David, you want to start or should I? <laughs> uh, you kind of sum this up a little bit more succinctly than I do. <laughs> All right. Well, so, yeah. It's, so, basically, what happened was in 2018, uh, The Boy Behind the Door was supposed to be a go in the summer, and um, we it, it got pushed until, uh, you know, 2019, and we didn't know exactly when it was going to go. And David and I had really resolved amongst ourselves that we wanted 2018 to be the year that we directed our first feature. So um, at that time, we had already found Ezra um, in the casting audition for The Boy Behind the Door. Um, and he hadn't officially been cast for Boy yet, but we were just like, this is a, like an incredible talent, and we really want to work with him. So, and we're like, and I think he's available. So um, we had that, and we also had access to an apartment that was going to expire in about like a month and a half. So um, we decided to actually construct a story around those two elements. We actually backed, backed into everything, like knowing that we had those two things and very limited resources, um, and crafted a story around Ezra and this apartment. So it was a really unique situation <laughs> that we have not done before. Well, I like how you did it. I like how you crafted it around the assets that you had, the apartment and Ezra. Uh, that's actually a quite a smart way to do something, especially when you're starting out low budget, no budget, micro budget, um, that's really smart thinking on your parts. Really smart thinking. And, of course, you, you. you had Julian. You brought Julian in for Jin, so he obviously was already in place for boy. Yeah. So I like, yeah. I, I like that, I, that in your journey, I love that I started with boy and now backpedaled to Jin. Because it lets me see just how much growth you guys have as filmmakers just in between these two films. Wow. Wow. This is a testament to you as filmmakers and storytellers that you took what you learned in executing and crafting Jin. And then up the ante exponentially, especially with your cinematography, for Boy Behind the Door. Um, incredible, incredible job, guys. So let's focus, let's focus on the gin because one of the things that you do really well that, st that is so important in this film because you've got Ezra playing a young boy who is mute. He doesn't speak. His dad is gone for the night working. Um, you got a boy in an apartment all by himself and he doesn't talk. So what do you do? 
You've got no dialogue. What do you do? You've got to look to your soundscape. And you guys and your sound team knock it out of the park. We can hear the gas escaping from the vents. We, you make use with the rattling of air vents and with the wall heater. We hear that, that sound of the, of the glass in the picture frame breaking when Dylan's heel steps on it. We hear the moving in the walls. And of course, since we can't see what's in the walls, it makes the sound even that much scarier. And through it all, the base of your sound design is the rasp of Dylan's breathing because of his asthma. So well done. Talk to me about working with your sound team to come up with this soundscape. Because without it, this would fall flat. This is your crown jewel here. <laughs> oh, wow. Thank you. Thank you so much for all the praise. <laughs> I feel like we don't really deserve it. Okay, well, you suck. Um, okay, how's that? Is that better? You suck. You don't know what you're doing. You made a crappy film. Does that make you feel better? That's how, that's how we normally feel. <laughs> that's how we normally feel, everyone. Um, I mean, I feel like I say this a lot, but it really helps when you're able to work with, you know, really talented people, but also just, like, genuinely nice, easygoing, collaborative people. Mm -hmm. I feel like it just makes the process so much smoother and more, like, conducive for, um, like, a really good product and, you know, discoveries that, you know, you didn't even think maybe could have been possible. Uh, because this was a horror movie, you know, in horror, I feel, and I you know Justin feels this way, too, we talked about it a lot, sound is one of the most important elements mm -hmm. um, that you can have you know, arguably more important than cinematography and probably side to side with acting, although I still kind of personally think acting is always going to be most important. But, um, you know, sound just really does have that very uh, naturalistic or instinctual sense, you know, if you're in the dark and, you know, you hear a creak or even if it's just pure silence, that in itself can be really scary. So we definitely went in knowing we wanted to craft a really strong, strong soundscape. And we had a really great uh, mixer on the project, uh, William, who just really, really nailed it and really took it home. And the other side to that is, uh, you know, Matthew James did our score, and uh, we were just so blown away by with what he developed and in working with him that it just really got us excited and I feel it like pushed us to really lean into a lot of those moments a lot uh, a lot more forcefully or strongly than we might normally have. We just we just fell in love with the score and we just really wanted to have fun with it. So we sort of just let the sound and the score kind of take over uh, at a lot of and like in a lot of moments. Well and and I have to applaud Matthew on the score because it really is perfect for the telling of this tale. And I like the way that he incorporates a lot of the sound, the sonic elements 
almost into the scoring is instrumentation. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so it's a really wonderful, you know, hand-in-hand synergy that's happening here. Um, not too many people and not too many sound designers or composers can work with the sound of gas escaping from vents and turn it into something that is so experiential. But you guys achieve that. Um, So I'm just so impressed. Uh, But again, it's that uh, the asthmatic breathing that is the heartbeat. And it's if you listen, if people listen closely to Matthew's score, the score is it's in a beat count that mimics and mirrors Dylan's asthmatic breathing. And it's so yeah. it is so cool that you guys paid that much attention to that and brought that into the into the fore. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to give so much credit um, with that too, Matthew. I know that the, the biggest thing for us when we went into you know this project was we knew that we were going to be a little bit limited on what we could show. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very visual storytellers. We don't like to rely on dialogue. Um, and obviously in this, it makes sense to not rely on dialogue to be mute. But um, we, we really knew that like, because we couldn't necessarily like constantly show this creature and show like the danger, we really wanted the sound to kind of feel like that constant threat. Um, and Matthew totally understood that, and he elevated it within his score in ways that we usually could never imagine. And we're so like we're so pumped about how that turned out. It just it really played into the, the tone that we wanted to create with really um, playing up this uh, classic eighties uh, nineties uh, horror tone that we really wanted to drive home. And um, yeah, it just. It, it, that that I think is one of the things we're most excited about in the, in the film in terms of how all that came together. Yeah, you. So I'm really happy that you responded so well to the sound. Yeah, no, the sound, the sound design, the soundscape. It really, this is your crown jewel in this film. Um, you know, in Boy Behind the Door, your crown jewel are those inky blue black, those rich, um, the the rich cinematography, Julian's lighting and lensing. Um, that's your crown jewel there. Your sound is your crown jewel here. And to see you be able to execute both of these key cinematic elements so well is wonderful. It is really wonderful, guys. Um, but let, let's talk let's talk about the visuals here um, because you've got this one apartment, you've got corners. You've got doors. Um, as, I, as I mentioned with the sound, you've got the, the wall heater, the external, the gas wall heater. You've got the gas stove. You've got drawers. Um, you've got a, a perfect bathroom. That white on white in the bathroom, it's the only white on white you have in the film. And everything else, you, you really utilize yellow, reds, you keep that greenish black for the color of our mystic gin, be it the smoke or be it the gin himself that I gotta tell you, 
made me I, I my mind immediately went to Jim Carrey in the mask with the toothy grin. Um <laughs> But it's just the one shot. It's just the one shot. Um, other than that, the fact that we have this mysticism taking on, you know, an old a, an old man who's dead, a mother who's dead. Um, you know, it it I love that and. You have a key sequence there, uh, the key, ba- the first bathroom sequence, where poor Dylan has lo- is trying to lock himself in there, and we see a hand coming down trying to grab around the door and grab his poor little head, but in the mirror, we see the ugliness and, and the, the talons of the gin. And you play with the visual so well, and you work within the all the corners and hard edges of the apartment everything is a potential hiding place everything is is potentially that metaphoric danger lurks around the corner so talk to me about crafting the story and crafting your visuals to work with this apartment that you found because you utilize every aspect of the location to your best benefit for this story. Okay, well, again, thank you for all the the kind words. I do want to address the gin grinning because (laughs) um, you really validated my feelings, Debbie because that was an internal debate between Dustin and I, and I personally thought he should not have been grinning. I thought it would have been scarier with this more of a stoic, dead face, serious expression. But, you know, we collaborate and we found a compromise and it looks like Jim Carrey. So I just want to put that on the record. Although we've heard many compliments about the actual Jim David, to be fair, and your question is, I still get it. Why does everyone like the Jim? Now it's also because about we got one person. Right. One person. Was, yeah, well, it's an, it's an opinion that means a lot to me. Well, so I, I, I actually, it's and it's not that I don't like it. I like it. I like it, but it, t- it really took me by surprise in that grin. All I did is I immediately thought of Jim Carrey in the mask. <laughs> That's what I thought it would be like in my head, too, so... Um, it's just really funny. Um, but in terms of the visuals, I mean, with crafting them, you know, because we sort of backtracked into the story, this was one of the few situations where we sort of just like greenlit ourselves because we were doing a project and we knew we had Ezra and apartment. We, we really crafted the story from, from nothing. So we crafted it knowing sort of the apartment, the layout, you know, what would we physically be able to do within this confined space? What are like sequences we could come up with that might play out in the kitchen or might play out in the bathroom or, you know, how would he maybe go from one section to another? What could he maybe jerry-rig or 
weaponize or use to protect himself that would just, you know, be very resourceful and intelligent choices and not seem like, you know, um, like stretches or like John McClane and Die Hard. We wanted everything to feel very, like, believable. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you, you wouldn't have a gun in real life. Well some places you wouldn't have a gun in your home in real life but you would you would have like you would have like a toilet seat cover that's something everyone has right or you know everyone has a hammer because so I guess we worked that way and then working with Julian this was actually our first time working with Julian it was you know again just a really great collaborative process you know he's really easygoing and he's just so creative and we were able to bounce ideas back and forth and we just really walked the space and we looked at you know a room from many different angles looking for like symmetry and talking about lighting and we sort of just built it from there i feel like we were even talking with julian about visuals before we even had the script fully finished so it all kind of fell into place um organically and like at the same time well, you do a really great job with the visuals, and kudos to Julian for your varying angles. Um, we get floor eye level when Dylan's hiding under the bed and we're seeing feet. Or, you know, we're getting the dutching where he's on the floor in the bathroom and the camera is going up, but then it's also looking down. So you've got dutching and reverse dutching happening in here. It works so well. And then the, the items that you have, he, Dylan is obviously a very smart boy. And so, yeah, he takes the, to the toilet tank cover. But also, and he's got the hammer. And they, then they just recently moved into the apartment because you saw him unpacking boxes. So, sure, they're going to have a hammer and stuff you know, around. And, of course, ant spray. Ant spray is one of those great things that everyone should have in your house because it does work. It is a multi-purpose tool, just like hairspray. Um, hairspray will immobilize a wasp, in case you ever need to know that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great to know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, all of these little things that you wouldn't think of. You know, you have this 12-year-old. He's using his head, and he's thinking of these things. And then as he's trying to call to Paige's father... Um, so you really looked at this from the mind's eye of a 12-year-old, of a smart 12-year-old. That was definitely a big goal of ours was, to, you know, if we're having a kid of our lead to really embrace him, you know, being a kid and having that kind of nice sense of wonder to, like, actually make the wish in the first place, but mm -hmm. then, you know, beyond that, we really love having really smart and proactive protagonists. So, you know, we didn't want him to just be this, like, constant victim. We really wanted him to constantly be thinking um, and staying on his toes about, like, okay, how can I potentially survive this hour? Like, what do I have at my disposal? And to really make this feel like, you know, like, he's a worthy opponent to the gym, like, not just the gym being a worthy opponent to him. So there was this nice, like, um you know, hug and pull between them. Um, we never wanted it to feel so one-sided where he's just like, you know, this, this victim that, like, can't touch a break. Um, so, uh, so, yeah, that was 
I feel like that was a lot of fun to, to figure out with the story and figure, like, you know, looking at the apartment and thinking of all the different, you know, ways we could be resourceful and that, you know, um, Dylan as a character could, could therefore be resourceful as well. Um, so. <laughs> well, and something else you do very smartly is that initially when he, when things start happening after he's made his, his, his wish, uh, with the flaming candle, which, by the way, kudos on your visual effects on the candle flame, because the flame itself looks like the black flame candle that the Sanderson sisters have in Hocus Pocus. Oh, thank you. That was the reference. <laughs> and considering I actually ha I have two black flame candles of my own um, that I actually bought from Bette Midler's Res New York Restoration Project. Um, and they that's the color of the flame. So I was really tickled to, to see that level, you know, that little nod and that authenticity there. But what you do so smartly is when he first makes his wish and he thinks nothing's happened and then slowly things are happening, and you really, you feel the fear. It's very palpable. He doesn't understand but then you take him back into his hiding place in the closet, and he reads the next page of, of, the, of the spell, which, of course, nobody ever reads the full spell to begin with. So he's got to go and read the rest. It says, okay, you got, you know, you got to live an hour, and then you can blow the, the flame out. And there's a total shift in the character of Dylan where he gets very confident, and that's where his smarts really kick in. So you took your time in setting up the fear and the confusion, and then it becomes Dylan is on the attack. He's not just on the defensive, but he is on the offensive. And you really did that well. And I don't think it would have worked as well if you didn't have Ezra. We, we totally agree. We have to give all credit to Ezra because he just brings, I mean, and boy behind the door but i feel in the gym you know it really allowed him to show greater range mm -hmm. um than what he you know was able to show in boy behind the door just because the role is a lot bigger for him yeah. and there's just a bigger range of emotions he has to go through um but yeah he he really blew us away he just brought so much authenticity to it and you know in terms of writing the character no matter what character we write, we always want them to, you know, be pro whole situation and, you know, they're facing a mountain of obstacles that just might be overwhelming. We always want them to try, you know, to fight and fight for survival. Um, that's just always important for us. So, uh, yeah, we really do love in the story when Ezra sort of does make that turn. He does go back to the book to now see how he can sort of take his fate back into his own hands mm -hmm. after, you know, making this mistake. And, you know, Ezra just really performs it beautifully. He really does. And the whole idea of making a wish, and in this case, you up the ante. Yes, everybody loves watching the Aladdin movies, the animated movies. Everybody likes watching the, the Arabian Nights from the, you know, the glory days of Hollywood. But here, it's not just making a wish for wealth or fame or fortune 
or something ridiculous. This is a this is an all stakes kind of wish. He wants to have a voice. He wants to be able to speak. And you really up the ante in terms of the importance and the you took away any kind of frivolity that could have been read into a kid wanting to make a wish and trying to do it and i think that's kudos to you from as, as storytellers that you went that route because you could have gone a different route with him wanting something wanting his mother to come back uh you know, or, you know, his dad home with him at night and not working. But no, you went for, he wanted a voice. And I think that has so much power to it as a wish. And it's also very metaphoric in this day and age for all of those who say they don't have a voice and they want a voice. But you have that cautionary tale, be careful what you wish for and how you get it. Totally. I mean, I'm really happy you picked up on all those different layers because we were we were thinking about all those and we were trying to balance them. And you know, the initial the initial wish was we were sort of debating like, well, maybe he would have wished for his mom to come back. But um, I mean, I think everyone knows you can't bring back the dead with a wish one. But also, you know, that really is something you can't change in life no matter what. It's one of those like unbreakable, unchangeable laws. Mm -hmm. So we wanted him to be more grounded in grief and a false sense of guilt. And, you know, the message of the movie really is to be thankful for what you have and appreciate the things you have while you have them and while you have the people around you. So we always wanted the wish to be sort of this double-edged sword and, of course, oh, that, that great well, message you bring through with Rob Brownstein as, as Dylan's father, and he reminds him of that, to be, th be thankful for what you have. And you really get that across. You really get it across, guys. All right, I know. Lee's very much our, our, our hope, so <laughs> glad you felt that. You know, Lee's going to take you away since you have a heart out at 1.30 and it's 1.28. So, any final words from the two of you on the gin? Um, well, I mean, gosh, we got to see so much of it, but I mean, we're, just, we're really happy with how uh, it's been received so far. It's still kind of early. We're hoping that when it's available to everyone that, you know, people continue to really... Uh, enjoy it, and it was a really special film for us to make, um, you know, because it, it really did just come out of sheer will and determination <laughs> to, to, to make a movie. I feel like, you know, the the movie in itself is kind of uh, this kind of wish and dream come true for us. <laughs> so, um, I you know, hope that people can really, really, that they, that they enjoy it and that they get out there and watch it. And that was my exclusive interview with David Charbonnet and Justin Powell talking about the gin. And you can see the gin. It's available on digital, on demand, and still in some theaters. It is 
such a well done film, and you will be spellbound watching uh, Ezra Davis in this film. So I can't recommend it highly enough. And again, be on the lookout, The Boy Behind the Door, and we're, you're going to hear more about that as we get closer to the next format release date. And right now, we're bringing on another multi-hyphenate hat holder, Mindy Bledsoe. Hello, Mindy. Hi. Thanks for having me. Oh, my God. I am so excited to have you on the show. Um, talking about the in-between, I'm just amazed at, at all the hats, writer, director, producer, actor, editor, and you were in a car <laughs> driving 4,500 miles. <laughs> yes, that, that, that's a true story. <laughs> wow. You know, when, when, when we describe a movie as, as a buddy road trip, um, nine times out of ten, eh, you do some miles here, you go to the next location, get pickups there. No, you drove this. And you, yes. And you shot in the car, and you did something so smartly that I really like. So often when people are, when we have films and people are in the car, You've got the air conditioner off. You don't have the radio on uh, because you don't want that hum or that sound or that ambient noise picked up by the camera or the sound gear. You incorporated that into this story. It gives us more authenticity and reality. Um, you know, as your character of Junior is lying in the back seat, um, and you hear the sound of the engine, you hear the clunk on the road. When you hit one of those little bot dots, um, mm -hmm. I love that because we feel what you and Jennifer, uh, your talented co-star, were feeling on this journey. These little details. You looked at all the little details, Mindy. Well, thank you. You know, it, we had to think of the, the reality of, of what we were shooting and, and, and kind of envelop that. Well, you really you did. Know, instead of, I'm you, sorry, I have a terrible connection with you. Uh oh. Uh oh. Are we on a cell? Are you on a cell phone? Are you on a computer? There are we you, go. Let me try this. Oh, that actually. How about now? That actually sounds fabulous. Yeah, there we go. It sounded like that was terrible. Uh, that sounds much, much, much better. Um, All right. <laughs> but you know. This whole film, it's about authenticity. And while, uh, you know, a female Buddy Road, you know, film that is not tragic like Thelma and Louise, which ironically, <laughs> I think this is like the week of the anniversary of the release of the film or something. Um, <laughs> but, wow. I like that. <laughs> but you incorporate, this is a very purposeful journey. And it's very purposeful purposeful on multiple fronts granted jennifer's character of mads she's got to renew her driver's license got to go home to south dakota to do it uh, yeah. so that's a purpose but then junior also wants to complete this trip that she you know that she was meant to take with her sister who is now yeah. deceased and has all of these bullet point stops that she wants to make so it's a very purposeful trip on those points, but also very purposeful for you and for Jennifer personally in shining a light on 
chronic illnesses that each of you have. And yes, very much. You know, that I love, number one, that the two of you are shining a light on that, are bringing that to the forefront. But what you're also showing everybody is that you're not a cripple. You live life to the <laughs> fullest. You keep living. That's you, right. Uh, you know, of course, diabetics should never do what my mother did. And she used to, like, take her insulin and not eat at all and then go into diabetic comas. So oh. <laughs> that was just plain stupidity on her part. Right. Uh, but it's all choices, right? That's just We're it. We're not perfect when we have illnesses. No. You know, we make bad choices. We do this. And I love how you've got Mads. It's like, oh, Sugar be damned, I'm going to have a pizza with pepperoni. Um, mm -hmm. You know, let those carbs metabolize into sugar later on for you. Um, <laughs> and your character of Junior with the, with the chronic uh, pain illness, the, C, uh, the CRPS, the Complex Regional Pain Syndrome. Um, uh -huh. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm going to drink anyway. Drinking may, yep. you know, most of us. We lose our faculties when we drink too much anyway. And if you down a uh -huh. whole fifth of something, you know, with somebody that already has, you know, motor skills that are affected because of nerve damage, um, you know, it just, okay, you, Junior has made the choice. I don't care. But mm -hmm. you live, Junior and Mads live with their choices. They accept their choices, but they keep going forward. And I love yeah. that. I love that truth. Thank you. You know, thank you for seeing that. And it was such, that's what we wanted to do was set out to show friendship, show these illnesses, show bad choices, show that people move on and keep going. Everything is possible. Well, and it also shows the friction that can, de can develop even between the best of friends where, one thinks the other is being selfish. The other thinks that one's being selfish um, because they get consumed in the moment and caught in the in-between of yes. the in-between of life, of growing up, of acceptance, of realizing mm -hmm. you aren't the only person in the room. Yeah. And also that in-between place of being sick and healthy. Yeah. Um, you know, it just, on every level, um, you really, you check all the boxes and you do it with so much truth and so much heart and authenticity. Um, where did the idea for telling this story arise, Mindy? This is not the average story that we would expect to see made into a film. Right. Um, yeah, it, it, actually the way the story came about. It's kind of bizarre. Um, it was the summer of 2018. I was 39 years old. I hadn't made a feature film. I was panicking. <laughs> um, my working partner had just returned from a, a, a work trip in India. We had some money. We were thinking about going on vacation, but decided to make a movie instead. And we thought the cheapest thing to do would be a horror movie. And so we called up Jen and we pitched her on this horror movie idea, and she said no. Uh, and she was like, Mindy, we've been talking about characters that have our own illnesses, and we need that representation on screen. I mean, I'll, I'll contemplate doing this project with you if, if we do a story that includes these kind of characters. 
And I said, well, why don't you come over and we'll lock ourselves in to our basement for three days and figure out if this could be a story. And that's what we did. And uh, we wrote it in about a week. Wow. And we hit the road and started filming one month later. <laughs> oh, God. With yeah. everything in the car. Yes, yes. There was, we packed everything in two vehicles. There was, uh, it's a four-person crew. Um, we, when we did it, we 4,500 miles in 14 days and we shot that movie. Um, we, you know, we had a 65 page script, which we thought was like an excellent blueprint for everything that we mm -hmm. wanted to get, that we needed to get. But we left ourselves open for what the road could bring. Cause we, you couldn't be perfectly planned out on this kind of a, no. uh, a shoot whatsoever. Cause we didn't have time to to pre-produce everything. And we certainly didn't have time to set up all the shots that we could idealistically dream up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we had to incorporate the, the experience of working reality and documentary, uh, in, into narrative, which our cinematographer Rob Sinska does brilliantly. I got to tell uh, you, he's perfect. I love yeah. Rob's cinematography in this film. Number one, you, we get the great sense of traveling the roads of, of this country. Um, you mm -hmm. see the wide open spaces. We see mountains. We see oceans. Mm -hmm. We see small towns. We see rural Americana in South yeah. Dakota with that farm. Yeah. Um, that's the kind of stuff that makes you stop and gasp and think. And his lensing and some of those sun flares. And I have to say, mm -hmm. were you really in the salt flats when you laid your face on the sand? Yes, I was. Are I was. you? That salt is still inside me. Are you insane? <laughs> how hot? No, I was. <laughs> how hot was that? Well, um, it had rained, evidently rained a little bit the day before. So this the ground was kind of moist and that salt just everywhere stuck onto everything. I had those leather Birkenstocks on. Mm -hmm. They were just dug into it, but you know, I didn't have time to think about like how hot it was. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was, it was so hot. It was the end of June. Oh my um, God. But it was the shot I had in my mind, and that's we're going to get it. And <laughs> it's a gorgeous it. shot because you, it, it was done right around noon. You can tell mm -hmm. by the position of the sun, mm -hmm. and you've got the bright, 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 and it's reflecting on the white, white salt. Mm -hmm. And there you are with your face down, and Jennifer standing with the sun essentially coming from behind her. And yeah. it was, I'm just looking please tell me she wasn't laying on the salt flats and lo and behold you I were wow i did it yeah Ugh. one of the most uncomfortable shots to get <laughs> I, I do recall that but i mean I, it's my favorite scene i love it that, that turned out exactly how i saw it in my head oh my god uh, but you you're no holds barred i mean we get you know the the farm is another one that is one of a pro, that could be my favorite shot when you both just get to the farm and see it for the first time with the river Isn't there gorgeous? that is stunning now had yeah did you know about any of these locations before you made these stops or was it you're looking at a map and it's like hey this looks cool let's stop here uh it's a combination of both um so 
we knew about the farm in South Dakota because Rob Sinska's family owns that land. So he grew up with that land. So he had shot ideas from that land. And the, like the car yard, the car salvage mm-hmm. yard, um, I had seen that place before, and Rob grew up seeing that. So wow. we, we knew a lot of stuff that we were going to get there, evidently. Um, that's the only stuff that we had actually seen before we ever shot. Everything else was discovered on the Internet, mm-hmm. uh, Google Maps. Um, just kind of, uh, we, we picked out the route that we were going to be traveling, that these characters would be traveling. And I, I would just go through and find towns and look for interesting things. And then when it came to, like, finding the motels that we stayed in, we did that on the road. We did that in between shots. It was like, whoa, that place looks awesome. Let's go, let's go sleep there for the night and we'll film. Because we, we shot. We, we actually slept every hotel, motel we stayed in. We actually stayed in those places, too. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, and I love the little gift shop uh, and stop and shop areas that you went to that you showcase because it really shows yeah. all these mom and pop kind of things that are out there. And yes, which is, I mean, so much of the Midwest, if anyone's doing road trips, that's where you find all the fun people that you're going to meet. And yeah, well, I love going to those little, those little places. Yeah. And then you spend a fortune on all the little tchotchkes. Yes, 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 we do. <laughs> and how many tchotchkes did you bring home from your road trip? Say that again. How many tchotchkes did you bring home from your road trip? Um, I mean, if you see it in the movie, that all made it home with us. <laughs> so, um, <clears throat> yeah. I mean, there, there were times it's like, great example, um, the motorcycle, the, in Sturgis, uh-huh. the little motorcycle museum. Mm-hmm. Um, that was Jennifer Stone straight up saying, I'm not going to go to Portland until we stop at this museum. <laughs> and I was like, well, if we have to stop at this museum... We're going to film it, and it's going to make it in the movie. Um, so everything that came our way, whether it be us buying tchotchkes or whatever, it, it somehow made it into the film. I love it. We, yeah, we had to incorporate. So we wanted that authenticity of it. I, I just, I love this. This is so much uh, kind of, not quite a total fly by the seat of your pants, but a lot of flying by the seat of your pants. Yes, with rules that we knew we had to follow and the you know the script and the that we knew we had to finish so like we knew the story we're telling we knew what was going to happen at the end and since we went actually traveled the the same route as our characters we shot most of it chronologically nice um most of it um so that very much helped stay open to whatever was going to come to us on the road. So, yeah, definitely a hybrid way of, of filming a narrative. Now, would you recommend this hybrid method for other filmmakers? Um, yes and no. <clears throat> Number one, I, I would say yes if you know if you've if you've told stories before, if you've shot something before. I think the the best thing that worked in our favor is, uh, A, the four of us, we've worked together before. We've worked in the industry for over 10 years. 
Um, we, we had a, an incredible short pre-production of we knew what we were going to accomplish. Mm-hmm. And if we got anything more, that was bonus. Um, so there was, uh, we fell back on experience and intuition. So if you can trust yourself and you know what story you're going to tell, then yes, embrace the hybrid making of telling a narrative feature. It's, it's exhilarating. It's fun. The universe gives you what you need. Mm-hmm. Even if it's the salt flats to lay your face on. Yeah. Yes, even that. <laughs> uh, um, you know, very important here, especially with your character of Junior, are a lot of the close-ups and a lot of what we see as to how the CRPS is affecting you. Um, you know, the close-ups of the hands in the sink, mm-hmm. um, very much like you can't even feel the water or the temperature of the water. Um, mm-hmm. and moving your hands, and that's so impactful, and yet it feels so effortless the way you have incorporated this into the visual structure. Thank you. Uh, um, I want to attest that to the fact of, you know, Jennifer and I, you know, we both have our own, these illnesses in real life, so we can bring a, an authentic to these moments that can't always be directed. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it comes to showing the visuals of it, you know, I've lived with, with CRPS for 18 years and I've stared at my hands I don't know how long <laughs> in my life. <laughs> so it's very much um, seems natural to, to me to always want to show hands because I'm obsessed with it. And there's the, these... Um, these windows into everyone's health and wellness and you can see everything about someone from their hands. So I have a real obsession with it. Um, I, gosh, I might've got off topic. What was your question? No, you're totally on, <laughs> you're totally on topic. And by the way, you have beautiful hands. Oh, Oh, thank you. I mean, they, <laughs> they are, you know, well manicured. They look lovely in the close-ups. <laughs> There was no need to put an oven mitt on them to hide them, even though that is essential <laughs> for part of your pain management. But, yeah. um, no, it's just the effortless nature of the close-ups and how you incorporate that. Or the, I have to lay down. I have to get in the back seat mm-hmm. now. Um, mm-hmm. And it just, and you just, you just do it. And there's no big discussion. There's no big argument. It's like, I have to lay down. I cannot move. I cannot get up. Uh, I'm worn out. And you even work into the dialogue, you know, after a day of walking. And I, I, I just, mm-hmm. I can't. I have to lay down. You don't really harp mm-hmm. on your disease. Jennifer doesn't harp on the diabetes. It's just mm-hmm. there. It's part of life. Yes. Yeah. And, and that really was the most important for us. When 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 Jen really suggested that we use these uh, these our, our own illnesses on screen, I, I was really ambivalent about it because I'd spent I've had it for eighteen years and I spent you know sixteen years not talking about it. So uh, to to be just to, to to get behind it and say okay let's put this out on the screen was kind of terrifying yeah. um but that was the thing is we can do this but i cannot make a, 
film in which I'm preaching about it or mm-hmm. being on a soapbox about it or educating someone about the disease. I just want to give people someone to relate to and maybe hopefully create a little more empathy in other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, you know, having a chronic illness isn't always doom and gloom. No. Which is very often depicted on screen. <laughs> Very much so. And that's one of the great things yeah. that I really love about both of these characters. Um, because as I said, you know, having witnessed my mother in multiple mm-hmm. diabetic comas over her life. And recently, within the past year, I was on the phone with my brother who was diabetic. And he slipped into unconsciousness while he was on the phone with me. He was out playing. Wow. He was out on a Monday night playing trivia with some guys from work in a bar. And he came out to call me. And then all of a sudden I hear him yelling and he's fading off. And it's like I knew something was wrong. And he had slipped into unconsciousness because he hadn't correctly monitored his medication given he was out drinking. Yeah. So, And he probably is like, I don't regret it. Nope, that was him. <laughs> nope, he did not regret it. My mother never regretted anything she did. He did. Nope, nope. He, yep. So, And to see that played out so honestly by you and Jen is just fabulous. Yeah, I'm really curious for you, because you're also editing this, were you editing along the way since this, so much of this was chronological, or did you wait until you had all of your footage assen- and then go into editing assembly? Oh, I waited. I waited uh, before I did assembly. Um, we, I was lucky enough that um, I, I was able to look at some dailies at the end of the day mm-hmm. just to see if, if, if we had enough footage to cover certain scenes um, or if we needed to reshoot something, which that was helpful because we did mm-hmm. along the way. But by no means could I even begin to string together <laughs> anything. But seeing, seeing the footage um, and, you know... In my head, it's working. It's already working. So when we got back, you know, I think I took a week off before. Uh, I, I took a week off, and Rob started just uh, organizing the footage for me. And then, my God, I think we had a string out in a couple of days. Wow. Like we we knew as we were filming what we were doing. But, I mean, of course, the edit took much, much longer after that. But, um, Yeah. We we also had two more pickup days afterwards that mm-hmm. we we shot in L.A. Um, in the apartments. So it's kind of the bookends of the move of the of the story. You mean you didn't drive back to South Dakota for some pickups? <laughs> didn't, didn't want to no. didn't want a twenty three hundred mile trip. <laughs> <laughs> it makes monetary sense completely. <laughs> you know what? A big big element of this film is the music. Yeah. Where, how did the music come into this? What were you looking for? Because you listen to these songs and the lyrics are so pertinent to what we're seeing unfold. <clears throat> and where Mads and Junior each are psychologically and emotionally through so much of this film. Um, plus mm-hmm. just some good driving music thrown in there too. So I'm curious... Yeah where the music came into play. Did you have a temp track for editing? Did you have an idea while you were shooting and driving? Talk to me about the the music and bringing that to life. 
when we started writing the script, um, I, I took a big pause and said, I can't do a road trip movie without the guarantee of music because I can't. <laughs> Music's way too important for me in storytelling and in road trips. So um, <clears throat> we started just kind of thinking about what we could do. And um, Rob Sinska and I used to live in uh, Shreveport, Louisiana, uh, back in uh, 2010. And in 2012, uh, we met a band called Superwater Sympathy, and we became instant fans of them. I directed a music video for them in 2013, which actually plays at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. I love and, that music video. Uh, I love... Superwater Sympathy. <laughs> I love... They later... I just love you it. You loved it? Oh, my God. That music video <laughs> is so gorgeous. And the color contrast and the way you're, yeah. you're using negative space in there on the sides uh-huh. to really get the feel of the black and the red and the contrast. Love it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, well, Superwater Sympathy later morphed into Hydrogen Child. And, you know, Rob and I are just, we just stand them to no end. Um, we gave them a call when we were writing, and we, we pitched them what we were doing, and they very, very kindly offered us their catalog. So we <sighs> continued writing the script with all of the music in our heads. Um, so there was a, a handful of songs. We knew where they were going to go in the movie before uh, we we ever started filming. So we were very lucky to have that incorporated. Oh, my God. Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I, are you going to release a soundtrack? Will there be a soundtrack Luckily, for this film? There is a soundtrack. It is available on iTunes. It's available on Amazon Music. And it has dialogue from the movie. <gasps> so if you actually push play, it'll take you through the whole movie again. Oh, my God. It's fun. It's a great soundtrack. Okay, now you know I'm going to have to go do that. I'm going to have to do that Please now. Please do. <laughs> Please do, and please tell tell all your other friends. Oh my um, God! Yeah. Well, you know, now, so, and my big hope is to do a limited run vinyl edition of the soundtrack, uh, just to really tie into the movie. So I'm hoping to uh, release that at the um, end of the summer. Well, nothing beats vinyl for my money. Nothing yeah. beats vinyl. But now I've got to ask you because this is you've directed shorts, you've directed music videos, you've been producing for a while. You produced Blaine Weaver's Cut to the Chase, um, mm-hmm. which I love. Um, but Thank what you. was this learning curve like for you making the leap to a feature film? You know, I, I get asked that question, and I I don't want to sound like an ass. Um, it just felt natural. Um, it's what I was born to do, so it felt exciting, and I was happy doing every single moment. Like there's, it's not. I've been out of college for twelve, thirteen years now. I've been, I'm ready and anxious and ready to do it. You know, um, uh, I, it was seamless for me, Debbie. I love doing it, and I can't wait to do it again. Well. To do it again, might you be doing a horror film next? <laughs> uh, we we <laughs> we had actually Jen and I were working on a project uh, that was a thriller sci-fi Ooh. that we were we were going to shoot in May of 2020. Well, we know where that then, what happened there. Yeah, we know what happened there. So, <laughs> uh, so we're still working on that script, 
and we actually, I have another script that I'm shopping around. So, I, you know, I, I'm not short of stories, and I can't wait to tell the next one. Um, so hoping to get some, some good funding for, for my next one. And I, gosh darn it, hope to be shooting in 2022. Boy, oh boy, I can't wait to see what you yeah. do next. But, you know, something I'm personally curious, curious about, Mindy, is is it difficult for you to wear all the hats? Is there ever a time where actor Mindy doesn't want to listen to director Mindy, vice versa, or director Mindy has a conflict with writer Mindy? Do you find the hat juggling, is there any challenge to that? Or is that also seamless for you? There, there is. I would prefer to, when I'm producing, um, also directing, it, it does go hand in hand a lot. Yeah. But there's so many aspects of producing that I would like to stay out of um, when I'm doing acting and directing. If I'm just directing, then I, I, taking on the producing is fine. But uh, all three of them, uh, that, that, that's, that's hard um, and, and overwhelming. And you tend to think about way too much that you shouldn't be thinking about. So, um uh, directing and acting is, is seems seamless for me right now. Um, I think that there it also depends on the next story that I if I if I act in my next film, it's going to be so much further away from this character, and that might be a bit more difficult for me. But I like that challenge, mm-hmm. and I look forward to that. And it excites me. <laughs> <laughs> now, what about with this one? Because you're also the editor. Were you mm-hmm. shooting with an editorial mind? Oh, yes. Well, I mean, we had to. Um, just because of the limited amount of time we actually had to shoot, mm-hmm. we, we couldn't be too frivolous. We had to know what we were shooting and if it could work on that scene and if it would lead to another scene. Um, so we very much had to, both Rob and I had to think with an editor's brain while we were shooting. Mm-hmm. We had to. Or we wouldn't have accomplished. Wow. And I'm, yeah. ju- I'm surprised none of you killed each other driving 4,500 miles together. I know, right? Um, uh, we, again, because we, there was, it's a small crew, we had a talk before we left. It was like everyone, we're just going to lay down the egos as, as collaborative as it gets. Mindy has the last word. Um, we didn't have issues. Uh, we all had the same goal. It was four artists hitting the road wanting to do the same thing. And and we did. And, like, bonded for life over that. It was one of the most beautiful filming experiences I think I'll ever have in my entire life. Oh. I c- it couldn't have gone better. Um, the universe was on our side. Oh, well, I can't wait to yeah. see what you do next, Mindy. And Thank you so much. And everybody, they need to see the in-between. It's available now. Yes, it's available. It's available on iTunes, Tunes? Amazon, I think Voodoo. We've got pre-sales up for our DVD and Blu-ray. When we are... just rec- filmed our uh, commentary. Jennifer and I did commentary. That'll Ooh. be on the Blu-ray. Um, and you can find links to all that at our website, inbetweenmovie.com. You sure can, because I, pl- I was in there today looking at it. So yes, and a link to the soundtrack too. Oh, now I and I didn't see that one. Okay, my eyes were kind of bleary at four thirty this morning. Um, it happens. I, oh God, I'll tell you. 
I'll tell you. <laughs> oh, Mindy, this has been so much fun. I can't thank you enough for being on the show today. Thank you. And, thank you for having me. And I sincerely hope you'll come back on the show again. Yes, absolutely. Oh, Mindy, absolutely. Thank you so, so much. And everybody, the in-between, see it now. You'll have a lot of fun. It's, it's a fun road mm-hmm. trip. Yay. Yes. Oh. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks, Mindy. Bye-bye. This is a great, great interview. Thank you. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. And I can't wait for the next one. Uh, me too. I'll let you know about it. I promise. Oh, thanks. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye now. And that was Mindy Bledsoe, writer, director, producer, editor, and actor of The In-Between. And, you know, Jennifer Stone co-stars with her. It's essentially a two-hander. And uh, most of you may remember Jennifer from playing uh, from the uh, Wizards of Waverly Place franchise for Disney. That is all the time we have today. Yes, we ran over like we normally do. Um uh, Next week, we are not here. It is Memorial Day. And Pam needs a rest. Says she nods her head in the booth, ready to fall asleep. Yes. So we will be back. Wait a minute. I'll tell you. What day are we going to be back? We're going to be back on June 7th, talking with the director of the outstanding documentary, Olympia, on Olympia Dukakis, who just recently passed away. So that'll be on June 7th. We will be back. Have a wonderful Memorial Day in the meantime. And for all you Yellowstone fans, it is every episode summer bash for Yellowstone as we get ready to lead into season four Memorial Day weekend on Paramount Network. And hopefully uh, Paramount will give us uh, the, the season four premiere date during the weekend. Stay tuned. And that's, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.